what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Stephen Pinker is an experimental psychologist who conducts research in visual cognition, psycholinguistics and social relations. He's the Johnston Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University and has won numerous prizes for his research, his teaching and his books, which include The Language Instincts, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. He's an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a humanist of the year, the recipient of nine honorary doctorates and one of foreign policies, world's top 100 public intellectuals, and Times's 100 most influential people in the world today. His new book, Rationality, was published in September this year. Stephen Pinker, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thanks for having me. I'll start with uh, a question about, I mean, you're very pop- popular and, and well-known as an author and a commentator in all sorts of ways, but you're a working scientist. So I'm going to start with a question uh, about that. You're an experimental psychologist. What was it that motivated you into that field? What drove you in that direction? It came out of an interest in basic questions on human nature. I was a little too young for 1960s activism, but it trickled down from older brothers and sisters of friends. And in those days, the nature of human nature was very much in the air. Should we be anarchists? Should we be Marxists? Should we be Ayn Randians? Should we, do we need money or are people, would people left to their own devices, just take what they need? Uh, Do we need police? Do we need armies? And all these ultimately boil down to questions of what kind of species are we? In college, I explored a number of the disciplines that approach human nature from different angles, anthropology and sociology and philosophy and English literature. I settled on psychology as hitting a kind of sweet spot between the interest of the intellectual interest of the questions and uh, tractability of studying them. As a laboratory science, it meant that you could take at least subtypes of those questions and gather data as to what was true and what was false. What were the big questions at the time when you entered the field? You know, what was it that formed your approach then? Questions that experimental psychologists themselves dealt with, and, and those were. Uh, much more narrow and focused as they would have to be. You can't get a grant to study human nature. <laughs> what a shame. Uh, but I did, uh, I, I personally began my career studying uh, a couple of uh, issues that were both experimentally tractable but had long histories within the, the Western philosophical tradition. One of them was what's the nature of uh, mental imagery? What What goes on when someone... Uh, asks a question about uh, what, what shape are, uh, are, are Mickey Mouse's ears or what's darker, grass or, or broccoli. Uh, we have the subjective experience of uh, activating a, a mental picture. where we, we visualize it, we picture it. But what does that actually consist of? The debates go back at least to the British empiricists, to Berkeley and, and Locke. Uh, is, is it possible to uh, 
revive the experience of visual perception without any input? Or is an image more abstract, even perhaps like a set of propositions of uh, things that are true or false, but that we just uh, report them subjectively as, as uh, having pictorial uh, qualities? The other one was, uh, is uh, uh, what's the nature of language and how do children acquire it? Is there an innate capacity for language? Is it learned as part of a general purpose learning ability that uh, uh, absorbs patterns from any structured input? Uh, a set of questions made famous by uh, my former MIT colleague, Noam Chomsky, and he himself connected it to debates on the nature of language from the British empiricists and the, and, and the Cartesian rationalists. So they were both... Uh, uh, deep issues with implications for what makes us tick, but in each case, you could um, you could gather data on them. Well, what were the most important conclusions that you drew from your own work? Those, uh, in terms of those implications about human nature as well, where these where this work took you into the the big questions and your provisional answers about human nature, as you say. In the case of say language development in children, I began. Uh, looking at mo models, algorithms, really, of how the child um, succeeds. That is, imagine a, uh, actually Chomsky uh, formulated the question, he framed it this way, a, a language acquisition device that is a b black box that uh, took as input in one end sentences from parents in context and at the other end produced an ability to speak and comprehend, a, a grammar in uh, Chomsky's formulation, meaning the algorithm that lets us speak and understand, not a set of rules on how one ought to write. Uh, what, what's in the box? And uh, uh, Chomsky argued, and I came to be persuaded, that it has to have some... Um, uh, built-in expectancies as to what a human language is. There's um, uh, an infinite number of ways to generalize from noises coming out of parents' mouths. Is it just <clears throat> high tones alternating with low tones? Is it uh, vowels and consonants in, in pretty sequences? Or are there words that uh, have an arbitrary uh, connection to objects that are then combined by grammatical rules that allow you to predict the meaning of a combination from the meanings of the words and the way they're arranged. And just looking at the existing uh, mathematical and computer models of how language acquisition could work, before you even ask the question of how it does work in, in uh, children, it, it became clear that a, a general purpose uh, pattern extractor would be hopeless. Kids learn to speak in a couple of years, they, uh, they express new thoughts. They aren't just memorizing sentences. And so the overall Chomskyan hypothesis that there's got to be some innate organization of, of language acquisition was something that I, um, I came to agree with. In the case of imagery, uh, the, uh, neither, uh, you can imagine two extremes. One of them is that uh, Im uh, images are like a, a mental picture. The other is that uh, we're, we're fooled by taking those impressions seriously, that images are really no different from uh, abstract, propositional, or even verbal uh, knowledge. Both of those are too extreme. I think that we have an image. We do reactivate fragments of relatively low-level um, uh, pictorial or imagistic processing in the earlier stages of the brain, but it's organized by our abstract understanding of what it means, what we're seeing. So a hybrid model of a long-term conceptually infused uh, mental database <clears throat> has the ability to activate visual patterns for problem solving over the short term 
is uh, is the way our imagery system works. How impressed are you with the human being when you think of things like that? I mean, we're, we're, human beings view a, a experimental fodder, but as you regard them in this way, you know, and you draw conclusions about them like, like a communicating creature, a thinking creature, do you ever end up thinking, well, what a thing is a man? You know, is there any of that in your work? Oh, uh, absolutely. What a piece of work is a man and, and, a, and, and a woman. Uh, but absolutely, it's, it, it, it's still, it, I, I do have that sense of awe. Uh, <clears throat> largely because all of our attempts to duplicate what the human mind does fall well short of what a human being can do. We, we certainly don't have a system that can uh, acquire language <clears throat> from the kind of input that children are faced with. And as we can see from the um, receding promise of autonomous vehicles, uh, who wouldn't want a self-driving car that would stay out of accidents and allow you to, uh, you know, check your email and, and read a novel while it's driving you from place to place? But they don't exist, and that's because what we humans do when we see things, our best AI systems still can't duplicate. Is this a prediction you're making? You think it'll be impossible to make these autonomous vehicles? No, I think it will be possible, but it's it's harder than our intuition would uh, would suggest. That's interesting. Harder than our intuition would suggest. Do you think that as human beings, we take a lot of our own capacities for granted? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's precisely because they work so well. Uh, here from the inside, we open our eyes and there's an interpretable world. We uh, hear other people talking and we go from words to meaning effortlessly. We have no um, access to the uh, kind of the, the machinery in the boiler room what's actually responsible for our ability to grasp a, a carton without crushing it or dropping it, to recognizing faces and objects, uh, let, let alone driving and, and uh, hiking, to uh, putting our thoughts into words or understanding other people when they do the same. It goes on beneath, beneath the level of consciousness. So it, it seems easy because it kind of is easy if you're a human being with a human mind. Uh, but when you... When you um, go down into the boiler room, when you, when you pry open the, the black box, then you are, I, I consider it to be an epiphany. One of the great scientific epiphanies, kind of like um, the first, uh, was it Leeuwenhoek, the first scientist who looked at a drop of pond water through a microscope and saw it teeming with microscopic... I saw all those things, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, or the visions of distant galaxies and and, and, and nebulae from, from uh, telescopes. Uh, trying to uh, ascertain what is going on in the human mind when we accomplish everyday feats. And it's a question that you're forced to ask when you do either artificial intelligence, that is duplicating it, or cognitive psychology, kind of uh, reverse engineering it. You become impressed by how much complexity there is to our ordinary mental processes. And do you wish other people realized that? I mean, do you think that that is something that's widely realized or is it uh, part of your part of your work to have it more widely realized? Not, not widely enough, because it does, in turn, you, you um, began the conversation by uh, asking how what, what drew me into uh, cognitive psychology. And of course, I've gone well beyond studying people um, uh, visualizing three-dimensional shapes in the lab or writing down baby talk and looking for uh, syntactic errors. Uh, I've That launched me into asking bigger questions about... Um, yeah, how the mind works, uh, historical trends in violence, human progress, which in turn uh, um, brought me very closely into the into the humanist movement. But the um, but yeah, I, I think that 
the, the, the consciousness raising of asking what makes us tick, not just what it feels like if you are a human, because most of it is concealed from you. Everything seems easy and natural when, when, when you yourself are a human doing it. But that kind of species-wide self-consciousness, what is human nature? What are the bugs in the system, as, as impressive as it is? What are the patterns that we naturally fall into? And perhaps we would do better by sitting back, reflecting, looking back on ourselves. Uh, that, I think, is a source of enlightenment and empowerment. I like to quote Chekhov, uh, man will become better when you show him what he is like. Do you still think that psychology is the way to answer those big questions about human beings? Uh, not just psychology, because uh, academic disciplines are, are really there for the convenience of, of deans and, and vice chancellors, because they can't put everyone into one building, so they've <laughs> they got to divide it up. But the landscape of knowledge is continuous, and the kind of question I've always in um, uh, drawn eclectically from, from my, my base in experimental cognitive psychology, but depending on the thing that I'm studying, I'll draw in whatever uh, information is relevant. So in the case of language, most obviously, the field of linguistics is highly relevant, but also the field of uh, artificial intelligence, natural language processing, the philosophy of language, the neurobiology of language, the genetics of language. Uh, in the case of vision, the history of depiction of three-dimensional space in art was relevant. Why did it take so long to invent perspective? If we see in perspective, uh, how does um, fiction and literature draw on our ability to visualize things in the, in the mind's eye? And then in the case of uh, other domains of psychology that I uh, blundered into later in my career, like, like violence, um, the neurobiology of violence is, is relevant because some of our circuits go way back in evolutionary history and we share them with other mammals. But then the, the 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 kind of the software, the psychology of violence. What is a what is a person thinking when he thinks it's a, a good idea to harm someone else? What's going through his mind? Uh, how can that be inhibited? What are the mechanisms of self control? What is the psychology of empathy? So those are all from social psychology, affective psychology. But then, of course, history is relevant. Uh, I began with uh, the, um, the my book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, why violence has declined, with observation that contrary to most people's understanding, violence, when measured quantitatively, has declined over many long stretches of history. That itself is a kind of psychological datum, even though it comes from political science and history and quantitative social science. So among other things, it tells you that we are not pinned at a constant level of violence. It's not like we, whatever human nature is, it's not something that's going to make everyone commit the same amount of violence all the time. Um, that and, and that historical fact, violence has changed, raises psychological questions. Number one, why are we so um, apt to harm one another? And number two, uh, why is it possible to inhibit whatever th that uh, tendency is? And so I had in that book two chapters in uh, psychology and, and neuroscience, one of them called uh, Inner Demons, namely what are the different motives for violence? And the other called better angels. What are the ways in which people uh, ha have inhibited those, those uh, drives? Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. 
If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the Humanist Approach to Life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. One very important idea to a humanist approach to life, and you touched on it there in relation to that that book of yours, that particular book of yours, has been, and it's interested you recently, I think, has been the idea that progress is not only possible, um, but it has been made and is being made. And that is an important thing for people to realise, I think, in your recent work, especially. Um, how did how did that come to be such an important article of belief with you? Yeah, the the questions of human nature and how it manifests over different periods of history um, drew me deeply into humanist questions. Uh, one of them is, um, you know, as you say, is there hope for progress, or are we uh, uh, are are we doomed to the uh, same amount of violence and and uh, ugly competition as uh, uh, as always? Uh, what is the scope for? improvement. And of course, we wouldn't need a humanist movement if, if things weren't changeable. We would just, you know, all be, you know, observers of the human condition and sit back and deplore it and write plays about it and, uh, you know, and, and spout witty aphorisms exactly. about it. <laughs> what tells you that it's possible to make things better? Well, I suppose you could have kind of an optimistic temperament. You could, you know, see the glass is half full, but you know, that's not very reassuring. Much better is we've done it in the past. If we did it in the past, why can't we do it some more? So it very much energizes and motivates humanism as a uh, as a progressive small p aspiration movement, uh, a a worthy cause for for all of us. Uh, it also um, it made me realize that whether or not we call it humanism, um, we're in in embracing humanism. We're in a sense um, you know, being delighted that we were speaking prose all our life. Yes, very common experience of people who encounter even the idea of humanism is exactly that, isn't it? Uh, but I think it, it's a good idea to put a name on it. But it is um, uh, it is a name for certain strands of, of, uh, of historical development and, and, and thought since the Enlightenment that the ultimate moral uh, purpose is to enhance human well-being, human flourishing, life, health, education, freedom, safety. That's, that's almost what progress consists of. That is, if I'm challenged to say, well, what is progress? The answer that I give is, is, is really a humanist answer. Uh, it's not uh, bringing the, the, the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's not um, uh, achieving the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's uh, you know, making humans healthy and happy and safe and, and uh, well-educated and le le leading the kind of lives they, they want to lead. And you see that a lot of the progress that we've seen in practice, whether or not it, it sports the humanist label, it, it is uh, a, a humanist development. That is, our educational institutions, our hospitals, our research organizations, uh, government when it when it's humane, that is the best liberal democracies, whether or not they say that they are uh, advocating humanism, you know, that, that's what they do when, when we treasure them and when, when they work well. You know, a hospital is there to, to make people better and you know, a school is there to, to teach, teach kids stuff. Now, that has been a historical shift. A lot of these institutions came out of religion and had uh, began with religious aims, which interestingly, they tend to kind of water down and uh, over time without necessarily announcing it. A positive development, uh, 
Likewise, governments, which simply exerted the authority of some ruling dynasty, have been, um, when things go well, redefined as um, institutions that we implement in order to maximize our, our well-being, that it's better than anarchy. Uh, to the extent that we can say that, we, we've implemented humanist government. <clears throat> so both progress as, a, as an aspiration is what we ought to work for, and progress, wh when we kind of see it, when we recognize it, and we say, oh, that, that, that's a good thing, we're, uh, we're really um, uh, appealing to humanist um, morality when, when we do so. I think you're right, and I think you're definitely right that humanist values have have changed religions, especially in the West. I mean, religious people now, by and large, especially in Europe, and it's slightly different in North America, but in Europe, you know, they're speaking humanism all the time. You know, in in, in ways that you sometimes think you you would be unrecognisable as a Christian to a Christian of a few centuries ago. You know, the things that you're saying, and um, because so so deeply entwined in the last few centuries, especially has has the idea of morality become with with a humanist basis um, that even you know, people who identify as religious. I mean, there's a great contrast, the great quote by George Orwell about the difference between a religious person and a humanist. And he says, you know, the religious believer always has to be thinking about the next life, you know, not this life, but the next life. Whereas the humanist thinks about this world, you know, how can it, how can it be made better? Um, how can I be happy now rather than constantly, he uses the phrase, like crippling, crippling themselves, trying to gain a, a better life. And now even whatever it is, less than 100 years later anyway, you know, that would be an unrecognisable distinction to be made between religious believers and humanists. You couldn't do that today because all the, everyone's really moved over to the humanist side of things. Even religious people now think that this world is quite important and we ought to make it better and so on and so forth. It's striking. Indeed. And, and things that, uh, develop, historical developments that haven't been called humanist really are, like the, the um, uh, Vatican II, the, the Second Ecumenical Council in the early 1960s, the changes within Mormonism, where they said, uh, "Hey, the idea that uh, that, that uh, African Americans are are descendants of Cain, forget that. We 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 had a, a new a new revelation. Uh, <laughs> never mind, we, we were wrong. My bad." Uh, but that kind of thing happens in religion after religion. I think it's a little, been a little bit slower to happen within uh, Islam, but there are signs of it happening there as well. Sure. And and in the past, of course, it happened in, in many Islamic civilizations, or at least in. There's a great book by J Jim Al Khalili about that. Uh, indeed, in fact, one could say that they were originally ahead of the curve, uh, at least in the, in the in the Middle Ages. Yes. You think I think that there are certain historical events, or at least tendencies, that have been particularly beneficial for human progress. I think particularly of something like the the human rights revolution that you have written about. But what are some of the others in your view? What are the things that have you know, kickstarted us along the road. It's not just slow progress. It comes in, in sometimes in fits and starts, doesn't it, at least in history. What are some of the things that have pushed us in the right direction on that big level? Well, certainly the, uh, the, the science, the, when, when deployed to, toward humanistic ends, uh, the development of, <clears throat> of uh, public health, that uh, you've got to keep human waste away from the drinking water, and so you build sewers, uh, vaccination, artificial fertilizer, um, antibiotics, uh, blood groups, anesthesia, the Green Revolution of Norman Borlaug, um, uh, the uh, agricultural revolution of the 18th century, all ways of coaxing more human well-being out of nature. And of course, science can be also applied to more and more destructive weapons. So the, uh, the, the very act of understanding the world doesn't 
by itself lead to human betterment, but when tied to humanistic goals, either um, explicitly or implicitly, science is an enormous force for, uh, for human betterment. Um, uh, rights, uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the, the, the concept that uh, individuals are morally uh, equal by virtue of being conscious and having the ability to suffer and flourish, that they're, they're, despite the tendency in human nature to favor ourselves and our, uh, our, our clans, our tribes, um, that is indefensible once you start to rub shoulders with other clans and tribes. When you have to come to a working agreement, then you can't say, uh, what's good for me is good because I'm me and you're not. That's just not going to fly. And so you're kind of forced to an expanding circle of uh, rights and sympathy. A democratic government, that um, a, a concession to some of the darker sides of human nature. I'm, I'm not an anarchist because I think in a state of anarchy, as uh, Hobbes explained, often misunderstood. It's not necessarily that we are all um, always out, out for blood and, and are, are, are uh, amoral, selfish predators. But all you need is the suspicion that some of your neighbors might be, and then you're going to start kind of arming in self-defense, and then your neighbors are going to start worrying about what designs you might have on them, and they'll start arming in self-defense. And you can have kind of an escalation um, of, of uh, weaponry, an aggressive posture, a uh, willingness to prove the credibility of your deterrent by lashing out against any insult or, or uh, 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 sign of weakness. If you have a, a disinterested third party, a, a government, as long as it is empowered by the, the people and it's uh, constrained to serve the interests of the people, it can keep people from each other's um, throats uh, just because neither has to worry about the other if there is a, a referee. But then uh, it's not just government, and, and I think Hobbes didn't quite um, uh, get this right, but once you solve the problem of uh, deterring people from preying on each other, you've got the problem of government preying on the people. And so you need constraints on government. And I think of liberal democracy as threading the needle between the violence of anarchy and the violence of tyranny. That is, you empower the government with just enough violence that it to, to deter people from exploiting each other without the government being able to deter, uh, to exploit people it, itself. So that's another engine of progress. Um, I, I think any kind of mechanism of uh, cosmopolitanism, of uh, ecumenicalism, of people seeing the world from other people's points of view, rubbing shoulders with them, makes it a little harder to, to dehumanize them, to demonize them. Um, and so a more connected world, all things being equal, will, will uh, push toward um, progress. But then there, and there are institutions that um, dedicated to human well-being, uh, of uh, uh, health organizations, scientific societies, a free press, um, think tanks, uh, intergovernmental organizations, um, uh, global institutions for, for cooperation. And institutions, I think, are crucial. Uh, and again, this relates to our, our, kind of our running theme of human progress despite human nature. That is how, and, and it's the subject of uh, my forthcoming book, Rationality. We're going to come on to that. Okay. How, how, how can a species that is 
in so many ways so uh, rational. I mean, we can we we keep we, we stay alive despite a, a rather harsh universe that we're born into. We bring up our kids. Uh, we've uh, we, we've uh, uh, populated the globe. We've we've um, seen all this progress over over the centuries. We've built a pretty respectable science. On the other hand, uh, people can be uh, you know daffy, uh, fall for conspiracy theories and fake news, um, and to resolve that, uh, I think the the the, the main uh, answer is that we form institutions that make us collectively more rational than any of us indiv is individually. We're all saddled with uh, biases and prejudices and, and fallacies, but if we play a, a, a agree to the rules of a game where we can spot each other's fallacies and call them out and criticize each other, if you've got a diversity of opinion, if you've got free speech, if you've got the uh, accountability, then um, uh, people, no matter how egotistical are, can spot the flaws in other people's egotistical thinking. And uh, collectively, we can uh, arrive at more and more objective understandings of reality. Well, let's come to that now, actually, since it, and rationality is such an important, you know, everyone who's listening to this podcast is listening to a podcast they know is about humanism and, and rationality is an, a massively important part of, of, of the humanist approach. It sounds like what you're rejecting there when you talk about human rationality, you're definitely rejecting, obviously, the, the sort of, is cynical the right word? I, I guess so. But the sort of negative stereotype of human beings that we're somehow, you know, like living beyond what nature evolved us to you know we're actually instinctive uh, irrational creatures that happen to have been able to develop technologies and so on you're rejecting that and you're saying that um we're, we're capable of of rationality but you're not saying it necessarily comes easily or automatically you're saying it has to be worked for quite hard precisely so i'm i, I you know I, I can be as uh I can have a, I have a, a rather dark view of of human nature. I'm, I I don't think we're angels. I don't think we're basically good. As Lily Tomlin, the American comedian, said, "I try to be cynical, but it's hard to keep up." <laughs> That's so true. Did she say that recently? <laughs> uh, no, no, it's an old saying. Yeah, because it's certainly true of the last few years. <laughs> yes, I know. All the more apt. Uh, you know, on the other hand, we've done something right. We we do mostly coexist a lot of the time, and we've reduced uh, uh, violent crime, and we've reduced war, and we've reduced uh, uh, racial prejudice and gender prejudice. So you know, we're not all bad. Uh, the The question is, how do our uh, better angels, as Abraham Lincoln uh, put it in the speech that I um, co-opted for the title of my book, how do our better angels manage to overcome our uh, all, all our dark side. And there, it's very much with the help of norms and institutions that, uh, that strengthen our, our self-control, our empathy, our application of rationality to the problem of reducing violence and prejudice. That is, we can see uh, it as a problem to be solved. Uh, you know, okay, there are some people, some of the time, who will try to uh, rob and rape and kill and, and, um, and, and demonize. Um, how do we set things up so that they they, uh, they they can't do it, or they do it a lot lot less than than, than they used to? Um, and uh, deploying our reason to the to this humanistic goal of cooperation, peace, health, happiness, uh, and so on is the the route by by which we can better ourselves. And it's the answer to the question: uh, How can such a, a flawed species, in principle and in practice, improve its condition? And you're saying you're saying both that that is how it's happened 
historically as a fact and also how it can therefore be employed further in that sort of through a, a collective collective rationality in a way uh, precisely and it is hard work as you you um, uh, mentioned in, in the in the question i think there's a constant tendency to backslide and we see that in threats to democracy threats to human rights threats to to uh, scientific understanding just because it doesn't it doesn't come naturally we we don't think scientifically we think magically uh, we don't think naturally humanistically we think tribally and we do have to be reminded that it, it actually is better to resist those temptations to fall back into tribalism and magical thinking uh, authoritarianism and realize uh, Liberal democracy takes work, the scientific outlook takes work, but it's uh, well worth it. Consciousness raising of what it means to be human, understanding ourselves, the continuous landscape of knowledge, progress, rationality. Stephen, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you so much, Andrew. Nice to talk to you. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the third episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available online and at all good bookshops.